for a lot of people, when they're doing their best work, they're really enjoying it. So if you're sensitive to that joy, that, that's an indicator that people are moving in the right direction. That's Dr. Graham Oakes talking about the joy of conversation. As a systems engineer, scientist and entrepreneur who describes himself as a deep introvert, he does have a deep passion and fascination for working through complex problems. He really enjoys it. He says he finds it exciting. I wonder if you can pick that up from the way he talks. His voice is gentle, his choice of words is careful, and his energy is constant. So if you're an extrovert listening to this, you might need to slow yourself down to match his pace of expression. And perhaps it's his capacity for listening that tunes him into what people say and drives him to create the space and time for them to get their thoughts out on the table. Graham helps people think about challenging situations in ways that draw out the opportunities and possibilities, most recently in the energy sector. He was the founder and chief scientist at Upside Energy, a company built in response to a challenge prize run by Nesta, a global innovation foundation, in 2013. Upside has built a cloud service that uses algorithms and AI to coordinate large numbers of devices like home batteries, electric vehicles, heat pumps and backup power supplies. The aim is to make it easier to get energy onto the grid and thereby increase the use of renewable energy. In conversations with Graham, you start to understand just how chaotic and complex the energy sector is, but he's optimistic about the opportunities new technology presents to us. As well as traditional energy users and providers, there are new stakeholders joining the grid, which includes local community groups and prosumers, people who both consume and produce products. Basically, owners of smart energy systems like solar PV arrays, home batteries, electric vehicles and so on. The best solutions aren't always clear. In fact, often he finds his clients overwhelmed by the web of options. So he uses his conversation style, listening, slowing down and inquiry to help them first understand the problem they have and second, make choices and decisions about the best way forward. And the best way forward typically involves working out how to decarbonise the energy source in response to climate change, how to make access to energy easier and fairer and how to take advantage of digital technologies. Given the complexity of the energy system, Graham's work means he's conversing with a huge range of people, government and policy makers, regulators, energy generation and supply companies, technology developers, network operators, local authorities and property developers and facilities managers, as well as citizens like you and me, consumers, community energy groups, academics, data scientists, mathematicians, engineers, software developers, economists, financiers and designers. He says that a key part of what he's trying to do is to help society develop an energy system that works better for everyone, cleaner, more equitable, cost-effective and reliable for today's generations and generations of the future. He's taken his deep knowledge and experience of the energy sector to help his clients across the UK and Europe to do just that. 
So we talked about what makes him successful in helping clients navigate their landscapes, what a good, joyful conversation looks like, what type of dynamic he rates as counterproductive and counter-collaborative, what shaped his thinking about conversations. And he shares a delightful story about communicating across language and cultural barriers that perhaps you can relate to if your work takes you around the world. Here he is. Welcome, Graham. Thanks for coming on. Um, really lovely to have this time to be able to talk to you. Um, I would um, love to find out a little bit more about the work that you're doing at the moment and just help us understand um, what it is that you do and um, who are the people, who are your stakeholders that you are keen to have a good conversation with. Sure. Hi there, Siham. So what I'm doing right now is helping a variety of different organizations to really think about how they build local energy systems. And, and that's really about how do we connect people of all types, so ranging from households or people in community energy schemes to um, small businesses through to local authorities, um, pretty well anyone. I mean, the, the good thing about working with energy is it's fundamental to everyone. Our, our whole society is built on top of energy. And so that energy system is, is going through a huge change right now, the imperative to decarbonize and address climate change is having a, a huge impact on the energy system at about the same time that it's suddenly woken up to the possibilities of digital and um, better use of data. And as a range of technologies like um, batteries, solar photovoltaic arrays, things like that, create a whole new way of thinking about energy. And that potentially gives us ways to empower people to address climate change and then really to do make a lot of positive shifts for society. I'm therefore working with various of those organisations to, to think about how to make that happen really. And, and, and it's, I'd like to be more specific, but my piece in this is often the broader systemic thinking to help think about how it all comes together and where are the levers for change. And so how do we set up projects, organisations, systems to create the change that we want? Yeah, and, and we've talked about the, uh, the idea or, or the reality that um, there is no blueprint for a lot of this, um, a lot of what you're trying to do and what you're trying to help um, other people do um, and so it's about finding what makes finding a way through all the different options um, and, and understanding why you might pick one over another can you talk a little bit more about that yeah that that's why I find it so exciting in a sense is there is no blueprint what we're trying to do is a whole new way of thinking about and delivering energy and we're sort of starting from a place where the, the current system is actually pretty amazing. The energy system in the UK is probably one of the most complex systems on the planet, and it's also one of the most reliable. And so we're coming from a place where 
we've built this very reliable, very economic, very complex system, but we've had side effects of that, the, the key one being that it is producing a lot more carbon, and that's having an impact that people like James Watt never thought about when they invest, invented the steam engine. And then, so we're really drilling with unintended consequences of inventions made two centuries ago and a, a system that's evolved and grown over those two centuries. And we're trying to completely revamp that to maintain all the good things, the reliable delivery of energy at a cost-effective price, um, all the, the positive things that come from access to energy, but in a way that don't create all those unintended consequences of carbon emissions, of a system that's really very centralised and therefore gives a lot of power to a, a small number of large organisations. We're trying to find ways to democratise and decentralise the system. And there is no real model for doing that. Where we're, we're trying to think it through as we do that and, and that's a really exciting place to be. It's chaotic and scary at times, but I think it's really exciting. And and who are the people that you are talking to every day? Who are you having these discussions with? So there's a huge range of people there. The people I was talking to today were people in a energy supplier and in a city council, so in a, a municipal energy supplier, effectively, that are trying to think about what are the propositions that they can take to enable better rollout of electric vehicles um, to address how we heat our homes because a huge amount of our energy use in the UK comes from heating homes and that is going to be very difficult to change that to a, a non-carbon source. So, so they're looking at their propositions, their systems over the next five years or so as they, as they start to create that transition. Um, on Friday, I'll be talking to some social landlords, so people that are thinking about how to provide housing to the typically to the people in the sort of bottom quarter or so of the population in terms of how well off they are. How do we provide homes to them and, and address some of the questions of better insulation, better warmth and comfort for them that has all sorts of impacts on health and social welfare, which all ties back to how essential heat is. So that's a the same problem, but from a different angle. I'll also be talking to a large artificial intelligence firm. And from their side, it's how do we use this wealth of data about how people are using energy, how they're using their appliances in their homes, about what are the needs in various parts of the, the energy system, how do we sort of marry those two together and use the data to do that. So it ranges from very deep tech to far more socially aware questions to the more business and supply, energy supplier Questions and, and again, we've got to bring all of those things together to make it happen. 
and quite a, a range of individuals, right? They're all coming from different backgrounds, uh, different functions, expertise, and yet all in this space of, of energy. Absolutely. We've, we've got hardware engineers, software engineers. You've got all of the um, data analysis disciplines. You've got a lot of user experience, a lot of customer and market research all coming together. And this is happening at a global scale. The, if Once you start talking about heat pumps, key manufacturers are in China or Sweden. Once you're talking about electric vehicles, then again, you're, again, you're talking about global manufacturers. So there isn't a, a purely UK solution to this um, because the people who are managing EVs want to, to sell them in global markets. And, and so there's a huge range there. And and given all those different um, functions and specialties, you must have an incredible range of, of people to talk to with different ways of talking, different ways of listening, different ways of absorbing information. So what I'm interested to understand is how do you navigate, how do you um, talk to those individuals? What's your style? It depends a lot on what I'm trying to say and, and, and where I'm going. I mean, I guess that's probably the element of, of, of what I'm doing is, you know, it depends. I'm, I'm trying to understand what is the context that works with this person. And so a lot of that is about throwing out sort of feelers and trying one model for describing what's going on and if they've still got a blank stare on their face quickly trying something different um so so it really is trying to come in without a preconceived script but with enough knowledge of what i'm trying to say and and, and the various angles on what i'm trying to say to find an angle that works with this person i think that's that is about being aware of the feedback that they're giving and being prepared to, to listen to them and see what isn't isn't working with them. And there's something that you said, which is that, you know, if they don't feel heard, your sense is that um, the communication isn't going to be effective and the information that's needed to resolve something or move something forward won't be on the table. And people may even be resistant to whatever you do offer because they don't feel heard. And, and absolutely, if you sort of go back to what is our goal, it, it is to address climate change. And that means fundamentally changing the way we run vast amounts of our society. So people are going to have to change how they travel, how they heat their homes, their economic models, all sorts of things are going to change. And you can't force that on them. In the current social context, there's a huge resistance to experts coming and telling people what to do. I think that's always been true. But right now, that's sort of writ large in, in the social context. So unless you can come and find ways to engage with people where they're at, you're not going to affect that change. And that feeds through into every layer of what we're trying to do in a sense. The 
a lot of the, the knowledge about what's possible is there in people's minds one way or the other. When we're talking to different types of experts coming from their different backgrounds, they have probably a pretty good idea of what doesn't doesn't work in some in their context. If you don't listen to them, all that information is lost, and and, and you can't possibly find find a solution. And so, how do you know when um, you've got a good conversation going? How do you know that? Um, they are feeling heard? That's a really good question. And, and I don't know that I'm, I'm sort of explicitly aware. You know, I hope that I'm seeing the signs that, that people are listening. I mean, I guess you, you, if someone's completely turned off, you'll, you'll recognize that they're, they're yawning or playing games on their iPhone or <laughs> yes, whatever else. Um, sometimes it only comes after several cycles of, of conversation. Um, I think, I think patience is part of, of this. You can't expect conversations to quickly get to the end. Not when you're trying to deal with very complex, um, concepts, you've, you've got to be prepared to give them time. And I think that's, that's one of our challenges as a society is that we become more and more sort of conditioned to this idea that things have to be done quickly. At one level, addressing climate change, we do have to move quickly. We've got a real urgency to change the systems if we're going to hit the Paris climate change targets. Um, so so there, there, there's a real urgency there. But to some degree, you've got to make haste slowly and, and you've got to give yourself time for those conversations. And I, I think that's so true, Graham. I, there's a sense very often that, you know, a decision or agreement needs to be reached in a single sitting of a conversation. And um, very often that's not the case. And and, uh, and if, if we try and rush it, um, we're more likely to miss some vital clues or not allow time for people um, to, to voice what they do know. So that that's a really interesting thing. Something that you've said as well is there's um, conversations have to be joyful, don't they? Yeah, but it's concepts that and you know very fuzzy concepts, but it's been very much in my mind in the last few years. Concepts of, of joy and beauty, because there is no again, it goes back to there's no blueprint. There's not a clearly defined answer to this. And even the, the problem we're still exploring and understanding. And so in those very fuzzy places, I don't think you have clear metrics or, or numbers or clear signposts that tell you that you're on going on the right path. And so a lot of it comes down to these more intuitive, more instinctive senses of is this going the right way or not and i think that's where beauty where we can sort of see look at solutions and get a sense of is there a harmony within them and the sense that you know people are enjoying what they're doing people are enjoying their conversations there's a, a kind of again there's a 
I'm sure this goes back to the Puritans, this sense that if you're enjoying it, then it can't be work. But I think that for a lot of people, when they're doing their best work, they're really enjoying it. So if you're sensitive to that joy, that, that's an indicator that people are moving in the right direction. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I think certainly um, in, in the work that I do as a coach, tuning into people's energy, um, you know, when you can tell the difference when someone's talking about something they, that they're very passionate about or excited about. Um, their energy, you know, increases, um, the, the body language changes as well. Um, when you get um, sort of uh, disagreement or um, conflict, everything changes. The, the, the body language changes, the tone of voice changes, um, energy can fall away pretty quickly. Um, and I think they are, I think you're spot on, you know, we are so used to measuring things um, in in numbers and percentages um, that we forget that uh, there's validity to um, reading people in that way as well in terms of their energy and how much they're enjoying the conversation and how easily it is to exchange ideas in the moment. Yeah, but that, that's not to, to discount numbers. I've, I've got some very numerate degrees myself. Um, and then, uh, but, but it, it's to recognize that there, there are these other indicators and, and again, to develop holistic solutions, you've got to be aware of this from every angle. In terms of a conversation, what do you feels, uh, you know, what does, does a good, no, I'm going to start that bit again. <laughs> <laughs> Early ramble that one. So, Graham, what does a better conversation sound or look like to you? So, yeah, I think that it's very hard to have a good conversation when there's a, a big power imbalance. And that's, I'm sure, partly my prejudice and my upbringing. Um, but for me, conversations happen between peers. And uh, there's a, a recognition that everybody brings something valuable to the conversation. There mm. will be differences. You know, you can have a, a good conversation between a master and apprentice and, and vastly different degrees of experience and knowledge. But there's a, a recognition in that, that, that both parties are bringing something to the conversation and, and both parties need to, to listen to each other if the conversation is going to work yeah yeah absolutely the, the uh, mutual respect absolutely for right for for each other regardless of your position or your role yeah, yeah. and it's interesting because um if you are at the receiving end of a bit of a power play you really notice that you notice that shift or or drop off in respect um and that that can very often cause us to just shut down and, and not engage as much or not, not expose as much of ourselves. And I, I think different people react to that in different ways. Certainly I tend to shut down, I guess, in, in those sorts of power games, I, I'm on, on a bit of a hiding to nothing. If, if I try and fight the game, then it just drains my energy enormously. So even if I kind of win the game, I, I've still 
expended a lot of energy to do that. And so most of the time I, I can't be bothered to, to spend that energy. Um, but again, there, there are people that are empowered by that. I think of my, my brother-in-law and, and nothing um, gives him energy more than getting into a good fight. And, and, and so, you know, that it, it's, and again, that, that's part of the challenge in, in having these conversations is that for some people just getting into that head to head fight and conflict is the most enervating thing they can do. And so how does somebody that is enervated that way have an effective conversation with somebody who's, who's turned off by it? And that, that's probably the, when it's hardest to have conversations. I hear that a great deal among, um, and I see the dynamics um, when I'm working with teams and um, typically someone has quite a strong personality and enjoys a robust discussion um, that for others can feel quite confrontational. And, uh, and there's, there's this mismatch of understanding, you know, the person that has, that is enjoying that robust conversation, um, doesn't necessarily understand why, you know, people aren't getting as involved as they should be. Um, and then for the other person, it can feel a lot like, um, that individual has an ego, um, that they find difficult to, to, uh, to interact with. Um, and that becomes distracting for them. Um, and so it's easy to lose sight of what the actual conversation is about or what the purpose is, what the goal is. Yeah. And, and there are all sorts of biases coming into play here. You know, we tend to, organizations tend to promote the people who are more assertive, more, more out there and having those robust conversations. And the ones who are quieter tend not to get promoted. So, so that you start to create a, a power imbalance. And of course, the risk that makes creates for the, the people who have the power is that they're now cutting themselves off from information from those other people. And then so to really be effective, they've got to learn to back off from their style to open up that other information to themselves. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and that um, that can be quite hard to see sometimes. Um for that individual, it takes quite an, an intentional effort Absolutely. to uh, to know that that's their style, that's the impact they have on the people around them, um, and uh, and then be able to self regulate that as and when needed. And particularly when, when they've been promoted for that style, you know that that style has been part of their success, and so in a sense, to to go to the next level, they've got to actually learn to do some or add additional behaviors on top of the style that has been successful for them. Tell me about um, your um, ability or comfort with being silent. So I'm naturally very introvert. I tend to be very comfortable with being quiet. And so I don't mind a degree of quiet in, in conversations that a lot of particularly more extrovert people would find, and I, I can see this, they find it quite uncomfortable. Sort of from my perspective, that quiet is a good way of creating space for other people to talk and, and to, to listen to them and for them to say what is important to them in a sense. 
someone needs to be quiet in the conversation. You can't all talk at the same time. Probably part of what I'm bringing is is that ability to be quiet. Um, it also means that when I'm saying something, it probably has more impact. Um, and, and I'm conscious of some groups that I'm with that they know that I don't say a lot for a lot of the time so that they know to listen when I am saying something because it's probably something important. And that's that's an incredibly powerful thing as well. Um, and to have comfort with, with that silence is good. What I like about it as well, Graham, is what you're effectively doing is cre- holding a space for people to speak. Um, so sometimes a question is great, but sometimes a, some silence is even better because it allows um, for a more fluid flow of, okay, this thought popped into my head, I'm going to share it. This seems like an opportune moment or it's, you know, something, another dimension that may not be directly related to what we're doing, but I think it's key. Um, And so by creating a space for people um, in being silent, you actually create those opportunities. Yeah, I think it does definitely create that scope to go off in a different direction. When you ask a question, you're even if you're trying to ask very open questions, there's tending to marshal the conversation in a certain direction. You know, there may be things going on that you're so unconscious of that you don't know how to ask a question to get at them. Someone else may be very conscious of those things. They, they may be losing sleep about those things. And so by creating that space, you're letting those people put onto the table what they think is important. You may then, as you sort of work together around that, realize it's not important. But if it's not on the table, you're not consciously making that choice. You're just ignoring that stuff through ignorance. Well, it's it's elimination, isn't it? Is it relevant? Is it not relevant? And uh, you don't know until it's shared. Um, and potentially even by that person sharing it, even if they think it is relevant, you create an opportunity to actually talk about maybe why it isn't relevant yeah. um, or pertinent to the conversation. So it allows that uh, something that potentially is is a risk on the table because it's not been voiced or a point of it creates a point of resistance um, by actually allowing it to come out means it can be handled as necessary. It can be handled in the best way. Yeah. And and also the again the the wonderful thing about working in this this very complex, chaotic space is that a lot of this stuff may not seem relevant now, but it's amazing how much of it in six months time you suddenly go back to something that someone said as a as a sort of side comment in a conversation. And suddenly it opens up a doorway that's relevant now. And and I think our minds often work that way. And so, again, if, if you've filtered those out before they even got into your conscious and into your memory, then they're not going to be available to you when they may be relevant at some later point. Tell me, was there, was there someone in your life who's influenced you or, or shaped your perspective on conversations? Probably not conversations per se, but a lot of my training as a a software engineer and as a 
manager of teams of software engineers and, and what's flowed from that comes from people that I, I sort of worked with in the really in the 90s and early 2000s um, in a sort of school of software engineering led by a guy called Jerry Weinberg, who was a an engineer, but or originally an engineer, but very much on the sort of soft side of things. And he was heavily influenced by a family therapist called Virginia Satir, who I never met, but I met several people in, in her school of, of therapy as well. And the, what Jerry was looking at is software is very much a people business. And it's, it's really interesting when you sort of look at software trying to automate software engineers, trying to automate the world and trying to put everything into the machine when software development is, is one of the most human activities out there and one of the most team based activities that there is. And, and so where Jerry was looking at is how do we create effective software teams? And that's all about how do we communicate with people? How do we maintain that peer balance between people as they're communicating? And the influence from Virginia Satir in, in family therapy was that those same dynamics play out in families. You know, it's all about how do parents interact with children? How, how does the power balance operate? You know, because originally, initially, you're starting out with a, a very imbalanced power. Babies are very weak. Their parents are much stronger. But over time, the baby's got to learn to, to find its own strength. It's got to grow up and eventually it's got to leave. And so though those questions of power are, are fundamental to how people grow effectively in families. And a software engineering team isn't a family. And it's not the same dynamic, but many of the same issues arise and, and you've got to create safety for people to express their concerns. You've got to find ways for the, the, jun the junior people to A, say what they're seeing, ask the silly questions that need to be asked, um, but, but also to, to grow over time. Right. Well, quite. And those are norms, right? Those are norms, but they are evolving norms. Um, among a team, just as they are in a family. Um, you know, you've got <clears throat> younger children, but as they get older, as they become teenagers, uh, as I have, they, um, they take on more strength and more knowledge and more power, therefore. Yeah. And, but see, even when they're young, their, their viewpoint is completely relevant. You know, the, the questions that, five and six year olds ask, do actually push you to think differently about the world. What's going on now with school children protesting about climate change? You know, it's a wake up call to all of us that this is urgent and it needs to be addressed. Yeah, I watched some uh, of the videos um, that were done very recently um, w with Jerry talking to him about um, his outlook on teams and he seems like a very or was a very intuitive um, soul um, who 
really had a great deal of of sensitivity and compassion for how uh, team dynamics or individuals operate within teams. Absolutely, yeah. He brought a very thoughtful perspective to that. You know, he spent a lot of time thinking about, reading about, talking about, talking to people about how that worked, and and so he brought that intuitive approach. But but he also brought a, a very thorough approach to thinking about it and and i thought it was interesting um virginia satir's work and her talk about her five freedoms because i think although they are you know they they applied to her practice um a family therapy um i think they have a lot of um merit within uh teams um and so i'll, I'll briefly share or remind you of of what they were um first one was to see and hear um, what is actually here instead of what should be or was or will be. And I think that speaks into your approach about um, listening uh, and creating space for people um, so that um, the full measure of of what you're dealing with can be taken in. Um, The second one was to say, um, to say what one feels and thinks instead of what one should. Again, it's that safety, being able to express something um, in the team that may not be, you know, uh, politically correct, or it may not be uh, the expectation, but um, to have the freedom to be able to express that and the safety um, and the respect from others to be able to have that received in the way that it's intended. Um, the third one is to feel what one feels instead of one, what one ought to. And I, and again, I see this a great deal, um, you know, when I'm, and people open up in one-on-one situations where they share a sense of I feel like I need to be behaving this way, but my my gut feel is it I, I really need to be responding in a different way, and I wish I could. Um, fourth one to ask uh, for what one wants instead of always waiting for permission. Um, in terms of I need this kind of a resource, um, you know, I need this support. I need air cover. Um, my team needs time to deliver something. Um, and the fifth one, to take risks in, in one's own behalf instead of choosing to be only uh, secure um, and not working, um, not not rocking the boat. So all really, I, I can see completely how the, the, that work has relevance um, within a team or work setting. Yeah, and all completely relevant to conversations. You can't have a conversation if, if you're both in a, a space of where you should be where, rather than where you actually are. An effective conversation has to be grounded in what is going on, what the actual situation it is. It, is. it has to be grounded in awareness of how you're both feeling. You know, if you're trying to pretend you're feeling something that you're not, then you can't be there in the conversation. All of those things have to be in place to have a, a really effective conversation. I am terrible at, at remembering details of things. It, it's very interesting. Um, Caroline, my wife, is, is a poet and, and is very good at memorizing or remembering quotes and things like that from literature. And I just 
can never remember that stuff. Um, and again, it's the way different minds work. Um, remember one of the books in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that had God waking up and recreating the world every morning because he'd sort of forgotten what it was like and he had to sort of recreate it from first principles. And then there's part of me that kind of feels like a lot of stuff I've got to recreate from first principles because I can never remember the details. But, you know, thinking about conversation, certainly one that, that has sprung to mind was one that, in a sense, had all the wrong conditions to be a good conversation. It was, I was on a trade mission to Guangzhou about four years ago as Upside was getting started up. And I was in a room with half a dozen Chinese engineers, none of whom spoke very good English. A couple of them kind of had a little bit of English. And I've got absolutely no Chinese, of course. And I had a, a translator who I'd been working with for about two days on the, on the mission. And, and so she had no technical expertise in, in what Upside was doing and, and only two days exposure to what we were doing. So, so was doing a wonderful job of translating, but, but didn't have that deep context to address technical conversations between half a dozen engineers. But we had a, a truly wonderful conversation, um, partly I'm I'm very visual in the way I do things. I, the biggest aid to me in a conversation is a whiteboard and a pen. And and so we're in the lead engineer's office, and and he had a whiteboard on the on the wall. So so I grabbed a pen and started to to draw the data flows that I was talking about. And he he grabbed the pen back off me and started drawing over the top of the data flows. And and at this point, it became clear this was going to be a good conversation because we were both communicating in that same visual style. You know, we, we probably spent an hour and a half, two hours talking about what Upside could do and how it could work with this manufacturer. And it was, it was a, a tr- you know, it was a truly joyous conversation. We all enjoyed ourselves. And although none of us, you know, we were, were talking across huge language barriers, huge cultural barriers, um, both in our national cultures and they were primarily hardware engineers. I was primarily software guy because it was an interesting problem. And we're all interested to solve that problem. You know, we had that, that shared desire to work together to solve a problem, which is probably why I'm an engineer in the first place. That created a, a great conversation. Wow. Brilliant. That's an excellent story. Uh, Graham and and uh, an example of being able to communicate across um, language cultures um, and through a common language, which was the engineering. Right? Um, tell me what what was the maybe the worst conversation that you've ever had? So I I don't think I have a, a specific anecdote there, and and you know as I've sort of been thinking about that one. Even if I, I had one, I, I probably wouldn't want to recount it for the, the fear of the other party being identifiable. Um, right. But, you know, I think it is about, as we sort of talked about earlier, it, it's when you've got those power dynamics coming in, when, when you've got people impatient to, to hear the answer they want to hear 
rather than to hear the, 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 the true reality of what's going on. And, and a lot of it is, in a sense, and again, I, I'm, am seeing specific conversations in my mind as I say this, but I won't say who they were with, um, where a senior person wants someone or wants a team to give him an answer and the team can't give that answer because it's not true. And, and you know, the, the team gets put in this place where either they can put across something they know is false or that they, they feel strongly is false and make the other party happy or they can try and tell it like it is and make this more senior party very unhappy. And, and so the team's in an impossible place. And that's because of the, this, this power dynamic and this ferocious desire not to be really appraised of the, of the truth because it doesn't fit with what you think should be happening. Going back to the, the Virginia Satir freedoms. And it, it, I think what I rail against there is the desire to call that a conversation. It was never couched as a conversation. And we shouldn't expect that every interaction we have with people is going to be a conversation. When I go and buy something in a shop, I just want to get given the change and, and walk out with whatever I'm buying. I don't necessarily want to have a conversation. When we're doing a project status update, maybe it's just a status update. It doesn't need to be a conversation. But we need to make times for when we do want to to drill into what's going on and hear what's going on and, and, and really understand the truth of the situation. And that means we need to be open to the possibility that the, the truth won't be what we want it to happen. Mm. And and being, you know, the scenario that you described puts puts an individual or a team in a very compromising situation. Um you know, you've got so many instances in throughout the history in the business world where, you know, companies, organizations, teams found themselves on a slippery slope and, and ethically compromised in terms of the decisions that are being made. So it can end up being, you know, a very uncomfortable um, situation that uh, a team or an organization finds itself when that is the pervasive culture of, of uh, going along with what um, maybe the boss wants to hear. Yeah, but it's terrible for, for, both, terrible for both sides. Um, eventually, the reality is going to come out. You know, eventually, the problems that you're having, the delays, the inability to make something work, whatever the underlying issue is, eventually that's going to come to light. Trying to hide underneath the carpet isn't going to make it better. Um, you may on rare occasions get lucky and, and the problem does go away, but more often than not, it compounds and grows. And so that senior executive should actually be trying to create the channels to hear about it as soon as possible. The, the fact that this isn't what he was expecting, and I'm conscious I'm saying he there because more often than not is he's rather than she's, but, but the fact that what's happening isn't what was expected, you should want to know that as quickly as possible because that's the only way you can improve it. Well, that might be the sign of, a, of an even bigger opportunity that you didn't realise was there. So that attempt to sort of steer it into shoulds rather than what is, is, is counterproductive from both sides. The, the trick 
as a, a senior manager is to learn to, to welcome that divergence because this is now telling when someone's telling you that everything's on track, it's not giving you any new information when they're telling you about a problem that they're giving you something new that you should be able to learn from. It tells you something about the situation that maybe one of your assumptions was wrong. Maybe there's an opportunity there that you hadn't seen. You've got to be welcoming that new information, not pushing it away. But so much of what I see is, is pushing that information away because it doesn't conform to what our wishful thinking tells us we want to happen. And from a from a business perspective, it's actually creating risk rather than taking it away. Absolutely. Rather than eliminating it. Yeah, the, the fact that you don't know about the risk doesn't mean that it's not there. Quite. <laughs> that doesn't, the reality doesn't go away. Yeah. Um, it just leaks out somewhere else um, or at a later date. What do you believe you're good at in conversations, if you were to sum it up? I think it, it is being prepared to listen to people. It's being interested in a lot of the, the details and, and, and where, when it's, you know, where the conversation wins its way to. And certainly in, in the best conversations, it, it's welcoming that new information, in a sense, and welcoming the exploration. Absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you for joining me. That's been great. It's been good talking to you, Sam. Hey, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Better Conversations with me, Siham Sirene. You'll find show notes for today's episode at papertuner.com forward slash podcast, including more information about my guest, Dr. Graham Oakes. I love how frank and honest my guests are about something so intimate as their conversation habits. Do you believe we can learn to understand each other better? I do hope so. In a world of fast-moving technology, it's easy to forget that our biggest currency is our ability to connect with each other as human beings. We're gifted with speech, but that doesn't mean we're always responsible in how we use it. If you haven't subscribed yet, then please do. You'll find Better Conversations with Siham Sirene on iTunes or Apple Podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Drop me a line, betterconversations at papertuna.com. I'm Siham Sirene, and this has been a better conversation. Bye for now. What were we talking about? I was giving up a wonderful reflection on the meaning of life and everything, and, and now it's gone forever and I'll never remember it. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll jog your memory and send you the snippet that we started.